Hi, I'm Maurice from Westfield, New Jersey. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Makita Brotman, is the author of the book The Solitary Vice Against Reading, the book that uh, connects the dots between Hitler, the Unabomber, and books. Makita, welcome to the Sound of Young America. Thank you for having me. Did you like that? We just just before we were on the air, we were discussing different interview styles. I was talking about <laughs> Bill O'Reilly's interview style. I felt like I should just go for it. <laughs> that's what that's the kind of thing Bill O'Reilly would say to introduce me, I think. Cuz you do you do connect the dots between the Unabomber, Hitler and books in a sentence. Right. In your introduction. The the dots are kind of far apart, but you could put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um so to say that this book is is about uh, is on the theme of being against reading is a gross oversimplification. Um, tell me a little bit about what the sort of rhetorical tropes that were going on in our culture were that you felt like you needed to respond to with this book. Well, I don't think I felt like I needed to, but I wanted to. Um, when someone you know, asked you what kind of book you wanted to write, yeah. what led you to respond <laughs> with this book proposal? Well, the the subtitle against reading is something that um, the publisher thought would make the book very accessible and marketable, and it has really. But obviously, the book's not completely against reading. It's not really very much against reading, so it's a kind of tongue and cheek title. But in the introduction, I talk about how, like all these book boostering campaigns and um, and all the campaigns for literacy and all the kind of panic about how people are not reading anymore and how um, literacy is falling. Um, um, made me start to to think about how people kind of fetishize reading and what reading really is and what it really does for people. And I it just kind of annoyed me. And I started to think, well, is, re- is reading really that important? Um, and isn't it some kind of isn't it really just be, being used as a scapegoat to focus all all these um, anxieties that people have about things that are happening and in, in, especially amongst young people today. And in particular, I was living in Baltimore at the time and. Um, and Baltimore had a really high and still has a really high rate of illiteracy. And the mayor um, came out with the slogan, Baltimore, the city that reads. <laughs> and it was a response to illiteracy. I mean, it was like, uh, um, you know, a, a magic spell. If you say it often enough, it might come true. But it didn't make <laughs> any difference. I mean, the, the rates of illiteracy just increased. And, um, uh, you know, not, nothing against Baltimore. I, I was very fond of the place when I lived there. But... Um, I think that illiteracy is not the main problem that that <laughs> cities have, you know. People tend to invest reading with far more than it deserves to be invested. I mean, people can live a pretty functional life these days without being able to to read more than is practically necessary. R. Kelly, for example. <laughs> I don't know about that, but, you know, if, if it's true, then R. Kelly is a, a good example because you can be wealthy and successful and have a happy family life if you're so inclined and have all the 
um, trappings of the American dream without being able to read. So why all this focus on reading? It just seems like something has been misplaced somewhere. You you backtrack uh, historically in the book and and write that society, even Western society, didn't always consider reading to be this kind of unalloyed good. What's the history of Western society's relationship to reading? Well, I think I think it's it's complicated because it it depends on on your class and education. But it's really, I mean, people forget that it's really only recently that reading has been taken for granted as something that everyone can do, and that literacy is something that everyone automatically learns in school. And in fact, it's that's only really in the last sort of um, couple of hundred years that that's happened. And in the past, um, before the advent of digital entertainment, books were actually seen as dangerous. And for example, um, during slavery in the US, slaves weren't allowed to read because it, apart from the Bible, of course, because if, if it was considered that it might lead them towards rebellion and dissatisfaction. And that's the main um, um, threat that books have been considered to ha- hold, especially in Victorian England, for example, it was considered frivolous for women to read, particularly um, romances and uh, any kind of book that would give them a false impression of what the world was really like. So romances might give young women the idea that marriage was all about love and desire and um, joyful uh, excitement instead of like domestic drudgery. So books were seen as sort of leading to dissatisfaction with the reality of life. And that seems ridiculous to us today. There's nothing dangerous at all about books, we believe. But as I say in in my book, that's kind of what happened to me. You know, that's kind of the experience I had. Um, I read an awful lot as a teenager, and I was pretty disillusioned when I got out into the real world and saw that things weren't quite as exciting as I believed them to be. One of the historical precedents that I found the most interesting was uh, Socrates, who argued that Books were useful to uh, almost in a in, in a reference sense, but actually worked against one's ability to think. Right, right. Because he saw that he he believed that books weren't the real thing. They weren't the thing itself. They were like an aid to memory, the way that you know Cliff's notes might be or Post-it notes might be today. And the thing itself was knowledge and experience and thought. And so having a book was like a handy you know, having your BlackBerry handy or having Wikipedia handy, but it wasn't the thing itself, which uh, an educated person should should assimilate for themselves, you know, as part of their own intellect. You write about seeing a, a library poster that features uh, a couple of bears hanging off of some balloons that say, reading can take you on marvelous journeys or something yeah. like that. Do you know that post? Uh, I, I, it reminded me very distinctly of the part of the theme song of the television program, Reading Rainbow, uh, that went, uh, butterfly in the sky, I can fly twice as high, take a look, it's in a book. Um, <laughs> um, when did, but what's interesting to me uh, about this reading thing is that it seems very focused on literature specifically. Yeah. When yeah. did, when did the idea of reading get so tied up in the idea of the novel? I think it was after the advent of general literacy, because once everyone can read, then people who are anxious about cultural decline haven't got anything to complain about. They can't complain that people aren't reading because everyone is reading all the time. But then 
once everyone can read, look at what they're reading. You know, they're reading magazines, they're reading true crime, they're reading pornography. So reading, obviously, isn't anything that we can necessarily associate with the general good, the Commonwealth. And so those advocates of um, higher higher literacy and those who are anxious about cultural decline need to to go one step further. And all of those um, campaigns by the National Endowment for the Arts are against su- suggesting that people are not reading as much as they used to and, you know, 20% of people read less than a book a year. Or I mean, those... Um, those only focus on what, what counts, and what counts in those campaigns is literature. So people are reading all kinds of things. People are reading every day. They're just reading in different ways and in um, in ways that are not necessarily recognized as reading. So, you know, you sit um, in front of your computer screen, you're reading. You check your emails, you're reading. You look at a restaurant menu, you're reading. Um, you're just not sitting there with a three-volume novel in front of you. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Makita Brotman. Her new book is The Solitary Vice Against Reading. We'll have more with Makita in just a minute on The Sound of Young America. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. If you're listening to this message, you probably already subscribe to The Sound of Young America. But have you checked out MaximumFun.org's other podcast productions? You can join the thousands who are listening to Jordan Jesse Go every week. It's a fun, silly romp through the world of young adulthood, arbitrary judgments, and of course, and perhaps most importantly, zoo animals. You might have seen the Casper Hauser comedy podcast featured on boingboing.net, on Zay Frank's blog, in the New York Magazine, or perhaps in the Times of London. It's a weird and wonderful multimedia journey through the minds of the beloved San Francisco sketch comedy group, Casper Hauser. And of course, every week we bring you a taste of Coil and Sharp, the amazing audio pranksters who roamed San Francisco in the early 1960s, pulling ordinary people into surreal and hilarious schemes. You can find these and all our podcasts at MaximumFun.org or by clicking on the author listing in any of our podcasts in iTunes. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. Let's get back to my interview with Makita Brotman. Her new book is The Solitary Vice Against Reading. What do you think leads novels and specifically literature to be privileged? Well... I think it's a combination of things, and it depends on the literature you're talking about, but I think one of them is um, people's nostalgia for their school days and the, the way that literature is kind of fetishized in school curriculum. I'm not sure if it still is, but it certainly was, you know, when I was a kid. And um, and also the, the sort of cultural capital that builds up around anything that doesn't have many fans so that the majority of the population find difficult to understand or or dull or, you know, boring. And then also a kind of old-fashioned belief in the idea of engagement, that if, if something engages you for a long period of time, unlike checking your email or reading a magazine, then it's, um, it's necessarily of higher value. You know, the knowledge is kind of cumulative and it can build up and up and up rather than just... It's like the opposite of, you know, sound bites or factoids or all these kind of little um, snippets of information for people who are supposed to have very short attention spans. And again, I think it's, it's I don't think it's true. I think it's it fetishized. I mean, people can 
watch a, a four-hour movie and and find it engaging. It doesn't necessarily mean it's it's uh, valuable. Tell me about what your relationship with books was as a as a child and as a student. Well, I um, I really loved books and I I read a lot and the title of the novel is um, The Solitary Vice because that's what reading was for me. It was a it was a vice that I did in private, um, usually late at night in bed under the covers. We should we should take this opportunity to mention <laughs> that the solitary vice as a phrase comes as a Victorian euphemism for uh, masturbation. That's right. And um, yeah, I thought everybody knew that, but <laughs> I guess they didn't. <laughs> uh, apparently not. Uh, maybe that's gone out of fashion too. But I compare the two and say that, you know, in the past people thought, masturbation was evil and would send you straight to hell and today people think well that's the best way of getting to know your body and masturbation is encouraged and um um it's uh, it's seen as not necessarily um a route to something else but as a sexual pleasure in its own right and nowadays not many people have very little to say against masturbation but the same used to be true of reading that reading was considered kind of sinful and a substitute for the real thing and now it's sort of a panacea and it's a, a kind of cure-all so what interested me as a kid was anything that kind of took me away from the world I was in. Uh, I don't know if that, you know, sounds familiar to you, but I think it. I think a lot of kids go through that experience where they're they're unhappy and they escape into books. And for me, it was like horror fiction, gothic novels, um, romance. But what was a, what was an escape was going into the past. So I really liked kind of you know, early Gothic novels and very old-fashioned language. And I really, you know, I read everything by Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte and Emily Bronte. Everything I could everything I could get hold of that was romantic and exciting and adventurous. And as a result, I developed a very advanced vocabulary, but it was all interior. I couldn't use that language with people. I couldn't talk to people in that way. And I also lost the habit of socializing if I ever had it. And I became very introverted and inarticulate and a recluse, really, because the more I tried to function in the world, the more I realized I was, the more backward I realized I'd got. So I just read more and more. And in the end, I think I I missed out on a large portion of my late teenage years where I should have been going on dates and learning to socialize and learning to have relationships with people in the real world. Instead, I was learning, um, you know, about Victorian literature, which... I'm sure a lot of people listening would think, you know, if only my kid would spend their time reading Victorian literature instead of going out doing drugs or whatever. But, you know, it, it's not necessarily harmless, uh, and it's certainly not necessarily a great virtue either. You got your doctorate in English literature from Oxford, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. So I can only assume, based on that fact and also the fact that you uh, are working in academia these days, that you didn't leave you at no point did you completely leave books behind no, um no. when and how did you get this new perspective on reading and especially on the kind of reading that you that you did as a kid probably just in the last 10 years since i've been in in the states um i think i you know like i said before the title is kind of tongue in cheek and as a, i'm a literature professor i love reading and i still spend much of my time reading so it's not reading itself that I think is is necessarily the problem. Um, nor do I necessarily think there is a, a problem per se. It's just that I think this book is intended as a kind of 
counterintuitive um, response to all those reading campaigns that completely fetishize reading. And I just want to look at the, let's look at the other end of the spectrum and say, you know, what about those few people for whom reading is, can be damaging, you know? Um, and I think that that's, that's been neglected in this whole argument. I'm not saying it's very many people and far more people suffer from illiteracy than over-reading, but it's a, there, there are some, you know, and I just wanted to draw attention to those. It's sort of because, like drinking water at a marathon. <laughs> right, right. Most people should be drinking more water, but occasionally somebody <laughs> yeah. drops dead. Exactly, exactly. There are, you know, there are dangers to be aware of in reading too much, and it's something that not many people have brought attention to, but I'm curious about it because it happened to me and I, I don't think I'm alone. So there must be a small percentage of people, maybe three or four percent of avid readers um, become addicted to reading and it can take them in uh, in unhealthy directions. So my pers- how's my perspective changed? I think looking back on it now um, from a from the perspective of living and working in the States, I I think the main um, the main thing that's come to my attention is the way that certain canonical books were really are really fetishized in in higher education in particular, and that there's really nothing to be gained from reading those books. You know, if if they don't appeal to you and if you don't like them, nobody's going to look down on you. Nobody's going to sneer at you because you haven't read War and Peace or Anna Karenina. Um, it's not the subject of social taboo that it used to be, and there's nothing to be ashamed of. And I think a lot of people feel embarrassed or ashamed because they don't like Shakespeare or they or they haven't read Chaucer or um, or you know they feel like there are these terrible gaps in their in their literary knowledge. And um, and in fact, so so what? I mean, you know, reading Chaucer isn't going to put dinner on your table. <laughs> There are rare instances <laughs> where it might. Um, let's talk about this issue in the affirmative sense. If we understand this negative side that could happen with reading that we um, uh, that's rarely recognized, mm-hmm. um, what is the way that we should be reading or engaging with books or indeed engaging with other media that, that you would advocate? Um, I think I'd just advocate following one's bliss and going in the direction that gives one pleasure. I mean, and not struggling with things that are difficult and that you, you know, that give you a headache. I mean, I I remember so many texts that I was supposed to read at college and I, I read them and I'm, I'm putting that in inverted commas, sitting, you know, <laughs> reading, I sitting with the book in front of me and my eyes going over every line. And I can certainly say I read it, but I have absolutely no memory of anything that it was about. So what does it mean to have read a certain book if it gives you no pleasure, if you have no memory of it, and if you never refer to it? I mean, it's just a, a kind of pointless, superstitious ritual that people go through because they feel that that's part of being educated. I, I would advocate reading what draws you in, engages you, and try different things. And if there's something that you find difficult, but you think, well, you know, I like this character, or I like this idea, but it's kind of difficult, um, put it aside and come back to it five years later or 10 years later. I mean, maybe it's just um, for a different stage of your life. I mean, there's no there's no law that, you know, you have to read Shakespeare while you're at school or, or even that you have to read Shakespeare at all. There are, there are those people, these um, the very pro-canonical people 
uh, you know, like a Harold Bloom or something like that, mm. who argue very vociferously that there are these great works with a capital G mm. that from which so much more can be drawn, um, the wells that are so much deeper and also that are so much more valuable to us because they are canonical, because they are to some extent shared. Are are we losing something by not having this uh by not having this canon that everybody has to read and engage? No, because it's still there. I mean, there's always going to be <laughs> far more Harold Blooms than there are of me. So, you know, I think that the the canon's always going to be there and people are always going to be forced to read it. So, you know, that's not going to go away. I think the majority of English departments in the country teach Shakespeare and Jane Austen and, you know, the 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 contemporary canon. And it will always be endorsed. And uh, a lot of the works in the canon are great. And only they're great in the sense that they're not necessarily enjoyable. They don't really give very much pleasure. They're difficult. And they can take a number of readings. And like I said before, I think um, there's a lot of works that I consider, or I, I consider my favorite works that are part of the canon. Like, for example, Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, which I loathed when I first had to read it in school and and tossed it aside and it took you know five or six more attempts to read it before I actually read it and and now um at this point in my life I'm I'm just turned 41 it's one of my favorite novels and I really kind of understand it and appreciate it but I I don't think I don't think I was ready for it at a younger age and so it's it's curious that the canon is um, advocated to students of university age because a lot of those works are very difficult and complex and, you know, explorations into the human condition. I think people need to be a bit older before they can really understand and grasp the issues there. Now, if I'm following my bliss, what if my bliss primarily, though not exclusively, goes to the television program 30 Rock? <laughs> Isn't it possible that I'm really going to uh, that I'm really going to miss out on some of these uh, some of these texts that might not reveal themselves to me so easily. Well, I've never seen Thirty Rock, so I don't want to. Oh, it's really I don't good. Want to criticize it's it. It's really uh, funny. Um, but <laughs> if it's really funny, I, I mean, there are different levels at which you can engage with the television program. You can sit and watch Thirty Rock in a glazed stupor, or you can sit and watch it in a thoughtful, cynical, critical, uh, appreciative mode. I mean, it depends on your mode of engagement, really. I think. Probably glazed stupor. I mean, I don't mean to be presumptive. You know, I'm trying to think back. It's possible, at least possible, that it's a glazed stupor of some kind. Right. Glazed, maybe not stuporous. But that's probably a state in which most people read Chaucer, I'm sure. So, you know, maybe there's no difference. It's been known to induce the occasional glazed yeah. stupor, yeah. Well, Mikita, thank you so much for making the time to be on The Sound of Young yeah, America. Thanks for having me. Mikita Brotman is the author of, among other books, The Solitary Vice Against Reading. Thanks again, Mikita. Thank you. That's our time for another scintillating Sound of Young America Super Show. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. The show is edited by Nick White. Our intern is Casey O'Brien. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. You can also email me directly at jesse at maximumfun.org. 
We'll see you next time on The Sound of Young America.